I don't know about you, when I'm looking for a plumber, I like to read my reviews. HomeAdvisor.com gave me some reviews on our sponsor, Art of Plumbing. Called them. They arrived on time. Immediately found the plumbing issue and fixed it right the first time. I called them last year and it was great. I called them again this year because I had a problem again. They came out, they fixed the problem. They even gave me solutions to help stop the problem in the future at 541-9405. Hey, come take a walk with me. Not like you used to do. Do something different and put yourself in other people's shoes. Open up your mind and open up your eyes and change your direction, change your perspective. Thank you so much for joining us on Other People's Shoes today. I am your host, Neil Matthews, and it is such a privilege to welcome in my next guest. You can find him on most podcast platforms. In fact, when I heard the title, I was a little bit suspicious of it. Here's the title, Come to the Table. Now, I remember as a child, we all could kind of sometimes gather around the table every now and then at grandma's, granny's, as is what we called her, and we could have a conversation. And it could be about anything. And Granny would let us talk and share our thoughts. And to me, that's what this next guest does. He invites people to this kind of invisible table, but has some great conversation. Will you help me welcome in my guest? He is, of course, a follower of Christ. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a brother. And he's a friend to so many. Sean McCoy. Not to be confused with the Rams head coach, by the way. And no confusion, that's not me, but I, uh, man, you honor me with your words, brother, and I appreciate the time, and I'm just really glad to be at the table with you. So I was, I was uh, telling, um, Eric was telling me about you, and others were telling me about you, and, and they said, you know, have you heard of Sean? And I was like, no, I mean, I've heard of the Rams coach, Sean McCoy, but I haven't heard of this guy, Sean McCoy, come to the table, Sean, and they said, you should go listen to his show. You might hear some similarities, and I start listening, and I'm enamored, just absolutely enamored. I'm like, who is this guy? And a little bit of jealousy, like he stole my idea, <laughs> but we may be borrowed from you without even knowing it. But this idea of having empathy and hearing people's stories and hearing where people come from is just uh, something I think we're both passionate about per se, right? Oh yeah. Amen. It's been all about is this idea of getting into someone else's shoes or inviting somebody to the table and having this conversation. Yeah. And it's, and it's such an honor to be on your show, like I said, because you do the same thing that I do. And I think the beauty of podcasting and the beauty of what we're doing is there's so much room out there for all these conversations. And, and while I talked about it from a, from coming to a, coming, coming to the table standpoint, you get it in terms of you know, the shoe metaphor, which is another one that we use all the time to just say, let's take a moment, like you said, to empathize and really get into the crux of what other people are and understand them for their heart and their soul. And when that happens, as we were just talking about a little bit before we got started, man, it changes you. It has an impact on you. It really does. So, so Sean, our basic question that we ask everyone, kind of similar to yours, which, which out even knowing it, that's what's so great about, like you said, about just yeah. getting together is this idea of, of kind of two worlds colliding with one purpose, and that, of course, being the empathy and the understanding, which is where we're at. Sean, uh, what size shoes do you wear? So I'm a 10 and a half is, is my 10 shoe. That's good. We can fit in that pretty easily because I wear a 10 and a half and 11 also. So we're, we're similar there too. And then is there a certain style or brand you like a, a more than another? Yeah, I do. So I, I didn't really care about shoes at all until probably about four years ago. My wife 
was so kind enough to sign me up for a half marathon, despite the fact that I had not in my life run more than a mile and a half when I was in the military. And even then it was kind of stretching it and it wasn't, and I'd never liked running, hated it. And she signed me up to do this half marathon. And so when I finally figured out that I was going to have to be serious about it, and the reason I was serious and couldn't say no was it was to raise money for pediatric cancer, which there's a story behind that in terms of how her and I met. And so I wanted to honor the kids that I'd known over the years and the stuff that we had done. And when I realized, okay, I, I probably should do something about my shoes because the shoes that I'd used to run the first couple of miles, uh, she kept telling me those aren't the shoes you want. And I remember going in and I had a good friend of mine who worked at the Texas running company down here in Sugarland. And she looked at my shoes and she made this really funny face. Like, I mean, you, you know, shoes, Neil, I mean, when you, if somebody rolls in, you know, Chuck's may be fashionable, but you're not going to try to go play basketball. No, Chuck Taylor. no, I'm not going to play and, in Chuck Taylor's. No, no. And so, and so by, and so she kind of just looked at me and kind of like, Oh my God, what are those? And, and I was kind of, not only say I was old fashioned, but I just wasn't really used to spending that kind of money on a you know, true running shoe, like a Hakka or a Saucony or, and I know you're giving the new balance a little bit of a hard time, but there's some really great new balance and there's some really amazing tennis shoes. And I, you know, the idea of spending that kind of money just didn't make any sense. And she fit it, she fit me with these tennis shoes. Um, and I just remember it felt like I was walking on a cloud and it was just amazing because it was built for, because my feet are flat, wide. Uh, they're, they're, my friends in the Navy used to say that they were tired, that my, my feet were so flat, they were tired, no arch. And so actually having a really good shoe now, I, all, I, all I do is wear tennis shoes. And I have one pair that I wear uh, out when I'm walking just because I want to be comfortable. And there's some, you know, some arguments physically around that and from a medical standpoint. And then I also still, still maintain, I don't run, but I, I mountain bike and I walk a lot. That's why I listen to podcasts or I've listened to yours this morning. And so I have a pair of walking shoes that are the same kind and I rotate those through. And so I've, I have a little mini obsession with, with tennis shoes. It's not, I don't have multiple pairs. I usually have two, one that I use to work. Uh, either walk or do yard work, and then I, I I just wear every day. But I am a ten and a half, and a lover of high end running shoes. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it it it's bad. I haven't bought a new pair of shoes in a couple of months, though. So you know, I've been doing pretty good not buying a new pair of shoes. So those who are listening should be proud of that. I don't know. So what what would you say if if you if you're willing to? you have like a budget and you get like, does your, what does your wife let you have like a monthly budget? Yeah. Budget? So we, we could talk about that. So, um, <laughs> I, my wife and I, we're, we're pretty fortunate to both one have jobs right now. So we're, we're celebrating that because there's so many that Man. don't. So by no means we're, we're bragging about our, our financial status or anything like that when I make these comments, but we give each other a hundred dollars a month that we can spend on whatever we want. So, um, I have to, and I hate the word budget, Oh, it's painful to say, but I do have to budget uh, shoes and and budget shoe purchases. Um, but I do have a lot of running shoes, a lot. Like majority of what I have are, are running shoes. And then in the studio, I have six pairs of shoes that get worn every so often. One pair probably once a month only and only on special occasions. So that's probably really bad, but that's kind of where I'm at. Nice. And so, I, and I know that you're a North Carolina fan. Huge Star Heels fan. Huge. Okay. Huge Star Heels fan. Yeah. With, with the one of the most famous basketball alumnus, perhaps not the most famous basketball alumnus from North Carolina. You know, just recently, one of his shoes, or his, one of his game worn shoes, sold for what five hundred sixty thousand dollars. Did you see that? Yeah, I mean, I tried Jordan. to bid on it. I'm not gonna lie, I did try to bid on it. Okay, I didn't. I'm totally making up that story, but. <laughs> 
But yeah, no, um, that's that's the hardest part for me is uh, because of the Carolina obsession uh, and passion and fandom. Um, a lot of my shoes and a lot of my wardrobe really centers around light blue. Like the room I'm sitting in currently, this studio is light blue. My wife and I um, painted it last year or the year before uh, Carolina blue. So the ceiling's blue, the walls are blue, my pennants are up. It's, I have blankets from Mexico that are light blue in nature. I mean, it's, it's bad. It's really bad. Well, well if you, if you're in that area, you know this, I mean, I, I spent time in the Navy in Norfolk and when you're down there with the ACC and tobacco road and you start learning about it. You just kind of get wrapped up in it. I remember years ago in the early nineties, you just get, I mean, I, I think Tim Duncan was at Wake Forest at the time. So and, that would have been like 97, 98. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he was, so I think his first couple of years, I was in around that time. And so there was, yeah, it was just amazing, amazing time for basketball. And so I, I don't, I don't blame people getting wrapped up in that, especially if you get in that area. It's, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's easy to do. So Sean, this is a sad part. My dad was a Marine, um, Semper Fi for those Marines out there. And he spent 24, 22 years in the Marine Corps. My mom will correct me. I'm sure I'll get a text later, but, um, but they spent 18 months in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I don't remember a single thing about it. <laughs> Not a thing. Not a one. Don't have a single memory. I was a baby. I don't, I don't remember. But my, my North Carolina obsession started in 92 when they beat Michigan. And they came out in those light blue uniforms. And I was like, that's, that's my team. That's awesome. And of course they won. So then of course I jumped on the bandwagon and been on ever since. So anyway, that's the North Carolina story. So, Sean, uh, we give this questionnaire out, and people sometimes fill it out. Sometimes they don't. I mean, you know, as a podcast host, to get information yep. from guests is obviously the one of the greatest challenges we run into as a podcast host. Would you agree with that? I would agree. Okay. <laughs> so I'm fascinated by this. You know, one of the questions we ask is, uh, what books have you read that have helped you on your journey? And so I'm reading through the names, and I'm, like, going along, going along, and there's one that jumps out at me. I've read very few books, uh, dyslexic mm -hmm. kid, just never got into books, never really been a strong reader. So a lot of audiobooks, you know, of course come my way and, and I love that helps me get mm -hmm. material and, and grab that material. My memory is actually pretty, pretty, uh, extensive when I hear it, I can retain the information a whole lot faster. My memory almost increases. It's weird. It's how my mind works. Thank God for that. Cause some people have terrible memory, but my memory is pretty good. Anyway, I say that because I come across this and I read autobiography of Malcolm X and I'm like, are you kidding me? I read that book or listened to that book in sixth grade. I had to write a book report on it because this lady was tutoring me in my reading skills, you know, to help my reading come up during the summer. And that was one of the books that I got to pick out at the library. And the only reason why I picked it out is that this giant X on the front of it, I thought, man, what is this about? This looks fascinating. What's this 10 number about? Of course, I didn't know it was Malcolm X. <laughs> but I was intrigued by that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've read this book. And so anyway, I just, I, I kind of wanted to ask you as our leadoff question, what on earth possessed you to read a book about Malcolm X? To, to understand something that I didn't know anything about. And not only was it him, but it was uh, his story. I mean, so often we, we think we know what's going on with people and we maybe, maybe it's on highlights or legends or, or kind of cursory information that we come across. And it was also a challenge to myself. I've always had a bit of a, uh, for whatever reason, a bit of a streak internally to, to, to seek and understand things 
And then somewhere along the road, it became obvious to me that you have to challenge those narratives and things that you understand that so often, if especially I was a history buff as a very young kid, um, was real big into learning and stuff like that. But then you would come to find out, especially as you got older, right? As you matured as a person, uh, it, it starts to change your perspective and how you read these things. If you read that book when you're in your 20s and you read it again in your 40s, I would argue that for most people, your life experiences are going to give you a different perspective on what that's like. And then most of all, you just, if you, if, if you don't know, and if you want to know and you want to understand, and racism has always been, for me, something I've been trying to understand since the first time I saw it in a movie when I was very young. I remember uh, it upset me greatly, and I didn't understand. And most, I would argue most kids, especially young, less than five or six, and I was at the time watching this movie, when you see somebody who is mistreated for something as simple as, it seems as mundane and ridiculous as the color of their skin or how tall they are, how fat they are, or how, how fat they're not, or whatever, you know, whatever dynamic you want to come up with in terms of a, uh, a label or, or some sort of measure on somebody. And even the good stuff now as I've gotten older, when that becomes the measure with which you, you look at people, um, you know, it's limiting and it doesn't tell you the whole picture and it doesn't tell you everything about them. And, it, and it's just, a, it, and it's it, not only that, but it, it can be wrong so many times that for lack of a better word, I'm not a big fan of that word anymore, but it can just be, the, and we're talking about, it could just be an incomplete understanding. I don't, I think I know that person. I think I know if I look at them and I see them wearing a Marine uniform, you think that there's something else. You think you, there's lots of things you can assume about a Marine. And right. You, you know, this as well as I do, I, my ship carried Marines in the Navy. So I got to serve with them and go away with them. And yeah. Thanks for giving them. us a ride everywhere we needed to go, by the way. <laughs> You, you are I am not a Marine, but but by default, somebody told me once that as a child, I'm a Marine <laughs> by default. And and then I said that to a, a, an old-time Marine, former Marine. I think he was like a colonel or something of that nature. And he goes, boy, you either are or you're not. And I was like, but my dad was. And he goes, no, no, either you are or you're not. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. So I'm an MK. I always tell people, you know, Marine kid, not a missionary kid. Yeah. So there we are. Anyway, back yeah. to what you were saying. No, but in that in that spirit of just uh, you know the you know under, trying to understand people and trying to understand things and trying to you know, to really get to really get a grip on on who things are when you hear the word marine like you can't say ex marine and you learn that or you they're you know they're extremely disciplined they're they're very tight they're they're going to be you know, what we call sat in when you look at their uniform the way that they dress and even after years later the way they do things the way they're organized you can kind of tell and there becomes a bit of a, and that's where the stereotype begins. And so you assume there's things that you can understand about somebody because they've been through this experience. But then we go through life, I think, and you start to understand that while there's some general aspects that are, that are similar, everyone's on their own unique journey. Everyone has their own unique story and everyone has their own unique perspective on things. And so when something gets in the way of that journey, I think, and something, you know, when, when you're looking over and this guy, Malcolm X is supposed to be uh, this, uh, you know, anti, anti-American, anti-cultural, anti-establishment type person, and they're mad and upset about something like racism. And there's this, and there's this uh, comparison between him and Dr. Martin Luther King and where Dr. King was all about, you know, pass, being passive and, you know, and, and letting love win the day and going at it that way. But here comes Malcolm X and he's, you know, he's like, well, you know, this is by all, you know, by any means necessary. You grew up at the same time I did. You remember those shirts and those things you start to, you know, wonder like, what, okay, what is that? And where does that come from? And so for me, instead of just dismissing that person as either bad or on the other side of where, uh, where you're supposed to be or where I happen to be, you know, what is, what is going on over there? You know, I, I, was, I was the kid that when it came to like comic books or stories, I was never uh, excited about the main character. I wanted to know about the guys on the side that, 
were kind of these uh, peripheral types. You know, it wasn't a lot about them. They weren't typical. They weren't the the, the average uh, average Joe. And then, you know, what's what's the story? What's going on behind the scenes with that person? What makes them who they are? Because as much as you can generalize and come up with these assumptions and, and starting points, uh, typically those those pictures are not all the way clear. And so, what better way than to read the autobiography versus a biography? Because it's in a sense he this is what he wanted the world to know. And so with that, I, I was in the Navy at the time, the first time I read it, I've read it a couple of times and what better way than to do the dive in and just listen to it and just, and just read. Yeah. Like I said, uh, I haven't read too many books in my lifetime, but that one, uh, that one obviously jumped off the page for me because I was like, Whoa, I've read that too. So that was kind of cool. Um, for me thinking of your show and again, you know, you've had a well diverse amount of people on your show. Is there a story or a, or maybe a series of stories that you've come across that moved you maybe more than another? And if so, how and why did it move you? Um, that's a great question. And, and I'll, my knee jerk is to want to do the, the cliche. Uh, if, you, if you've had kids, it's kind of, or like for you, for your shoes, right? What's your favorite pair? And it's like, oh my gosh, this is the Jordan worst. 11s, so, but, um, and I only have one kid, so it's pretty easy to pick, but I know what you're saying. Like the knee jerk right, is like, all of my kids are great because your episodes are like kids, right? Yeah, they are. They are. And they're, they are like that. I would say the one that, that I, uh, my favorite, the one that I got the most reaction from, the one that I, uh, was kind of the culmination of, of the entire journey I, I interviewed a guy named Isaiah Gooley, and it was about the new Jim Crow with, Ale- with, Jim, with uh, Michelle Alexander. The first episode that I did was about race with my buddy Jim Sanders. And in that, um, one of the questions I was asking him was around, you know, what, what can we do? What do we read? What, you know, what, are, what do we go to try to understand? And he mentioned this book, and I'd never heard of it. And so I read the book, and, and when I read it, it, it was harder to read than the autobiography of Malcolm X. There were multiple times reading the autobiography of Malcolm X that I was – literally can remember like wanting to throw the book across the room. Like I was just like, you think all white people are the devil. You think they're all terrible. I'm out. I mean, I'm just not going to listen to this. I don't believe it's true. I know it's hundred percent not true. Is it in my own little world? I was sitting there going, I, dude, I would give anything to get away, get rid of racism. Uh, I don't, I don't do that. You know, I don't, I don't act that way. That's not my, you know, I don't, I never have, like I, it repulses me. And, uh, and yet I still went through that book and read it. Of the uh, the new Jim Crow was even harder. Um, it was ex- there was nothing enjoyable truly about both books. Uh, there was nothing enjoyable about reading in, in, in that context. I read a book called the uh, the Nazi Doctors by Robert J. Lifton when I was in the military years ago, and it was another book informative. It was about the psychology of genocide and what would convince people to do what the, what the Nazis did to the to, to the Jews in, in World War II. And so it's, that's not the kind of thing where you have a good time at. So all that to say that the, the interview with Isaiah was an opportunity to have a conversation with somebody who, who in this mixed my large group that I've been a part of through this other podcast. It's, it's like, as you know, you get in this world and it's kind of this, there's all these nuances and you just get wrapped enraptured with it, different aspects and what they're, what they're doing. But uh, he was in that group with us and it was part of this, you know, ideas and discussing and I, and he had mentioned the book and I just asked him if he'd be willing to come on and talk about it it's kind of an, uh, uh, a complimentary episode to my friend Jim, because I didn't know Isaiah and I wanted to get, get another perspective. And so that conversation, um, because it, what it opened for me in terms of the perspective was I, I discovered something that I didn't know. I, I understood a system as I read it and as I've come to understand it, 
the things that were in place, the things that have been going on relative to race relations and, and whether it's legal, socioeconomic, political, cultural in this country that have been going on since the beginning and even after the 60s when it was supposed to be quote unquote over, uh, that what was really happening, I discovered this undercurrent that I didn't know existed. And if you've ever experienced something, whether it's intellectually, um, emotionally, or just you know, physically, spiritually, or whatever you know, medium, that, that is kind of a revelation. Like you didn't even know that, that now all of a sudden it was made clear to you and you didn't even know it was there. But then it becomes undeniable and once you see it, that was my perspective. And what was amazing to me was his argument on his side was my whole life, I knew that there was something going on. I was aware of it, but I didn't know, I didn't know what to call it. Like I didn't know the mechanisms. I felt, I felt the impact. I knew there was something, something else was going on here and not like, you know, spiritual divine kind of providence or, or, or that nature, but just systemically something's going on in this, in, in the actual physical uh, world culture that I'm in. And he didn't know what to name it either. So, and then he discovered and then his answer was this. And so my answer, so it was coming, both of us coming to the same conclusion and understanding of what it was, but our individual paths gave us a completely different perspective as to what it was. And so that, that revelation for me, in addition to the revelations from the book and some other conversations, um, and what happens on, what happened on my end was it just kind of shatters, shatters what you think, shatters your foundation of what you believe. And I went through a lot of that uh, when I, when I became a Christian from somebody who didn't follow Christ at all, or even had much good to say about Christianity. When your foundations are rocked and you, and you're reset, it is a humbling and it's a very difficult and it can be very painful. Um, that growth that you go through and that churning and that changing uh, is challenging. It is not easy. It is not fun. It's like swallowing something that's too big or not being able to breathe, or it's just, it's not comforting. And we live in a culture, we live in a society, we live in a day, an age where we are pursuing comfort and especially comfort and, and, and relaxation. And, and we want to know, we want to be certain uh, it's in our, it's in our, what we do. And that's what we want all the time. And when you go through a process like this, when you walk through other people's shoes for a moment and you really do it, that comfort and that, uh, that, that aspect and that, uh, those, those elements, they go completely away. But the beauty of that, the awesome part about that is that that's not a negative. That's not a suffering. That's not a, I don't consider that a bad thing anymore. This is an opportunity, right? Every conversation you've had with people on the show that is reset or that you've listened on other podcasts or whatnot is a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. It's a beautiful opportunity to hear somebody else speak and to listen to somebody else's story. And as you were talking about earlier, then it gets in your soul and it gets in your mind, it gets in your heart and you can't, you can't deny it anymore. It's, it's, it's this experience that you go through uh, that, that just in my, in, as I have gone through it, uh, as difficult as it is, uh, it, it becomes so much, it becomes, it becomes a beautiful uh, fruit to use one of our favorite analogies and metaphors. It becomes this beautiful fruit at the end of the day. And what makes it beautiful, what makes it sweet, what makes it ripen is that struggle that you go through before that understanding and listening and, and going through that, that pain and that suffering, if you will, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's bad. That resistance doesn't mean it's bad. It helps you grow. That was beautiful, Sean. I mean that, that was, that was awesome. Um, I, I'm curious on this. Is there anyone that would not be welcome at your table? That's a, that's a really good question. I've struggled with a couple of people that I've wanted to have on. Um, and one of them was an extremely conservative 
theologically. Uh, and some of that, if they were listening, they would probably know who they are. And they're in the circles that we're in. And the challenge was around, especially back when John MacArthur's, when him and Beth Moore and all that stuff was going on, and I guess it was about six months ago, uh, that he, uh, you know, basically, you know, as I was, as I took his comments and as I've taken the typical comments around misogyny and power and control and who gets to do what, but there's an element that's extremely conservative um, and extremely um, committed to this, this idea. And, and, and I've been struggling all with that to have a conversation about women's roles in the church and the, and the inerrancy of the Bible with somebody who, who is obviously very, very committed and staunchly committed to, to those things pretty much absolutely. And doesn't, and I did all the things you're supposed to do or that you're asked to do it, listen to their viewpoint, listen to their podcasts about certain subjects and, and go through all that and, and hear it. And my challenge with that is, is not that whether or not I could have a conversation with them. It's just, if the conversation was not organic and didn't have this, um, my concern has been, is there going to be a flow or is it just going to be kind of this extreme, like this is it. And I'm just not interested in anything else being said about it. And that just doesn't, it's like kind of talking to literally, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's a, it's a figurative a figure of speech we use all the time, but literally talking to a wall, it's not interested in a conversation. I think that would be my biggest challenge. Um, I'm still trying to see what would happen because I, I still still like to believe in the idea. Not that I'm going to try to convince anybody. I think that's the other thing too. I'm not interested in convincing anybody of anything. I'm interested in putting stuff out there. And as you know, from hearing the show, uh, my hope, my ultimate hope is that it inspires somebody to have a conversation of their own. It's not so they can hear this viewpoint and then take it as the gospel for themselves. And if this person says this viewpoint, they automatically have to adopt it because they said it. It's more of a, can you see people turning around and having a conversation about sexuality or women's roles in the church or just where women are in society in general, or you pick your politics or religion, whatever the, whatever the subject can be and go through this conversation and, and allow for them to have that viewpoint. But then there has to be a room to make it uh, organic, to have that relationship, to have that opportunity for either side, I think, to grow. There has to be a willingness to at least understand and respect the other person's viewpoint is there. Because if you don't, then we have what we see dominated in the media and everywhere else, uh, not to pick on them. And that is, it's a single refrain. It's a single viewpoint. And, and, then, and then it just becomes very, very hard uh, to, to, to have anything kind of have some potential. In. So that's the, ch- so in terms of challenging guests, I would do it. I just am not sure. I'm not sure what the fruit would look like at this point. And maybe and part of it's too, is because at the end of the day, I try to be very Zen-like. I try to be very, you know, centered. I try to follow Christ and that idea of just not, you know, not being, you know, if you can, if you can pull back the emotions, if you can do that. But look, I, I, if you ask my kids and my wife, I can be emotional on just about every level, and I can get overwhelmed with my emotions. And I'm, and I just am afraid there's some areas that are sensitive, like the women's roles in the church and how we treat women in general or other people or whatnot. That coming down on this idea, and then it becomes this debate about inerrancy and who said what and translations, and you can just go down this rabbit hole that people do all the time. And there's just nothing. It's the reason I got off social media. It's the reason I got off of all social media, to be honest with you, and kind of pulled back from even listening to the news. It's just there's, it doesn't feel like there's an opportunity to inform. It's everybody's trying to influence, right? I don't believe it's a conspiracy theory. I just believe people are trying to influence a viewpoint for their own benefit of some sort, one way or the other, whether it's part of a business strategy, if you're a big multimedia social or big media company, 
everyone wants to everyone wants to lampoon them, but it's like that's their business strategy. That's how they make it. That's their that's what they do. You're getting upset at them for doing what it is that they do, and, that, and that, but that's how they do it. And so and so without having an opportunity to really to be more informative, to, and that's the beauty about listening is that it gives you that opportunity to hear that. But if I'm just interested in coming out with this and influence you, Neil, to buy these pair of shoes strictly because of this. And it's almost like you're, it's, it's a form of manipulation that, that we do on all kinds of levels. And look, tact is the art of letting somebody else get your way. And I, and I believe in that. And there's some, you know, there's some, which is a little bit of basics of politics and there's always politicking going on and there's ways you can do that. And, you know, very few people I know of go through life just being stoic and doing one thing one way. Uh, but the, so I'm not, so it's not that you're lying or you're being dishonest or you're, you're, or you're, you're trying to bait and switch. I know we have a, there's a big issue with that in the church around, Kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, hey, free pizza over here at the church where you're just going to hang out and bite your friends. And it becomes this opportunity to kind of, you're not trying to be sales. I'm in sales. I get it. Uh, there's some value to that process. And there's some things you can do with it that allow for that. But if you're just trying to do something to be transactional, if you've ever been sold to, if you, you're buying shoes, I think you know the difference between a salesperson who loves shoes like you do. Like that's probably your favorite people to find. They're just trying to help you find the right, the shoe for you for that day. Then there's other people that do sales transactionally. It's like, I make an 18% commission. Neil walks in the door. My goal is to get him to buy the most expensive pair of shoes. And I don't care if he likes North Carolina. I don't care if he's got a kid. I don't care if he has a podcast. I'm going to smile at him and nod and say whatever just to get him to buy this because I need the money. And that's what I care about versus an experience where they come in and they're like, bro, I love it too. And you're talking about this highlights during the time, you know, if you're, if you're a fan of certain teams. And then you, and there's a way to be like, Hey, let me tell you about this thing going on over here. And he finds the right shoe for you. So it's, it's kind of the, it's kind of the difference in those aspects of whether or not you want to be influenced and what you want and, and influence. And again, it becomes great. It's not, there's not, it's not a, again, it's not a diet. It's not a set definition of what that means, but in the context of how you, whether you're informative and whether you're able to do that, if people are just interested in just trying to get me to think the way that they do, that becomes a difficult conversation to have. And it just becomes all, it's just, you're going in reverse and slamming into the wall coming back out going in reverse. And then that becomes that, def- that old definition about you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And I just haven't seen a lot of fruit born from people that are uh, that absolutely stoic. I got to go have my way and I'm just going to you know, mow down and lay my way and get, get what I want. And I do think there's a, again, back to opportunity. I, I love that word. Those people t- typically tend to be the ones that, that have they're the hardest nut to crack per se. But when you do, there's a, there's a the lesson is almost that perspective that they're able to draw from. If you talk to people, I was listening to, um, this one of the new pods that just came out with Nadia Bowles Weber, where the first woman she interviewed was uh, a former member of the Westboro Baptist church and how she had come out of that. And you talk about extreme. Like we, if you're in the, if you're in the Christian world in America at all, or even if you're not, if you, <laughs> if you have were, the media, were they the you, ones burning the Quran? Or threatening no, no, they're the ones that pro, they, they were the ones that were protesting uh, the soldiers' funerals. Oh, uh, okay. And they, were, they were at the, it, the, the funerals. God, hate, okay. God, hate, God, hates, God hates fags.com. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it was basically a family that had started this church, right. and she was one of the, she was a daughter of the guy. She was oh, a granddaughter gosh. of the guy who founded it. And she was talking about how she, and she, they were the ones that, when, like when Sandy Hook had the, uh, the shooting, the school shooting, kids, like kids. They're the ones that were basically wanting to come out there and say that this was that we deserved it, that it was happened because of because of our sin and the lax and our gun laws, and this was and basically they were the ones showing up with the signs and basically rubbing the ultimate salt in the wound of these parents whose kids had just been killed in a school shooting. Uh, 
right? And so she was part of that. And so listening to her, so as, as extreme as she was, and if you go in, and if you listen to that episode on her podcast called The Confessional, um, what, got her to, what got her to understand, what got her to start to move was on Twitter, and she was out there you know, with her, you know, and everybody knew who she was, and they took a little quick second to read her bio and some of her comments. Well, now they know who they are, and, the, and our typical responses have now become, when you have that dualistic nature, this is the enemy, this is the face of the person, of the idea that we're trying to get rid of. I need to defeat that and obliterate it and make it go away. And she had that, but then she had other people that were reaching out to her and like wanting to know who she was. Why do you think this way? And that experience is what got her to, to realize that maybe not everybody else was as bad as she had been told in her world growing up. And so by listening to other people's shoes with her experience and her listening to others, that was the catalyst that got her to turn away to a different idea of how to approach people in life. And it led to her having a moment at this, as she tells in the podcast, not to give it all away, but it's such a beautiful example of what you're trying to do and what I'm trying to do and what I think we ultimately need to do all the time, not just in situations like these or in times like these. This is good advice, in my opinion, always. And that is, it let her, it gave her a chance uh, to let her defenses down a little bit, to not be attacked for just being, because in her world, she grew up under this. And I'm not going to try to make excuses for well, that's just the way that they were raised. Because at some point in time, you have a decision to make over how you're raised. It's not a black and white thing. If you grow up a certain way, it does not produce a certain thing. If your parents are a certain income level or you have this, none of that is a definitive uh, equation for some sort of other result, no matter where you're coming from, in my opinion, in my experience, I should say. And so, so what, what allowed her to come, to, but in, if that's all she's ever known, I mean, if all you've ever raised in, and you call it brainwashing or whatever, but it's just what you've been exposed to. It's the amount of information you've been given. It's the experiences you've been given. And if you can see any kind of truth in that, you're going to start to believe this is what I've been told is true. And so, especially when you're young, and then when she had this experience and she went through this transition, ends up having a kid, she ends up at this conference and she's speaking. And she's in the back with her one-year-old baby on her chest. And she looks up and the woman who's starting to give this speech at this point in the conference is a mother of one of the kids that was killed at Sandy Hook. And she has this moment of realizing, and all this comes to fruition. She realizes who she was, she's listening, and she's got this baby on her chest. And you, you, may have only, you said you only have one quote-unquote child. One's enough. <laughs> one relationship in, of any kind is enough. To no, one, one kid is enough. Those that have like five, six, seven, <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking. Like seriously, love you, but no. One is good, yeah, two is but, too many, three is whoa, whoa. But, but with one relationship, whether it's romantic or, or it's your parental or your friend, is enough to get you to understand the beauty of another human being and then the beauty of that collective relationship. It's this augmentation of what happens when there's, it's the reason, it's the reason I think it's in the gospel of when there's two or more gathered in, in Jesus' name, that Jesus is, that the spirit is there, right? The Christ is there with us because there's something magical that happens with that. And she's listened to this lady talk. And then she has, she has this moment, she has this baby on her chest and it's all starting to realize to her that she was protesting and like celebrating the death of this woman's child. And so then there's this, again, I keep using this word, but then there's this opportunity, there's this invitation now. She can figure out a way to, to talk to this woman and meet with her. She uses Nadia to go and have this connection with her. And she has this moment, has this opportunity to basically, and I don't want to say for, ask for forgiveness or it, it, it was more of a, repentance type thing of, of an, a rec, an opportunity for reconciliation an opportunity for you know, for mercy 
And then what a beautiful thing that happens when in those moments, there's a chance that that can happen. And I do believe that you have to have choice. There has to be a choice in it. We can't tell people they have to forgive people. You can't tell people that it has to be that way. You can't force it. What makes it beautiful, what makes it harmonious, what makes it beneficial is when somebody chooses on their own volition that I'm going to, this woman forgave, accepted her in, and now what that does and what that, how that transforms her, how that transformed her and what that's going to mean for her daughter, the people that she's around, and then for the lady, uh, the, the mom of the, of the child that was killed, what it does for her soul. You know, we, we, wanna, we want world peace in a way, and we want all these things to happen, uh, but we got to do some work. You know, we got to do some work. We got to spend some time. Well, and I think that's uh, the challenge, right? Is we don't want to put in the work. I don't want to put in the work sometimes. I mean, <laughs> right. I, I, I give you an example. I mean, I'm out mowing the lawn the other day and I put too much oil in the lawnmower. I don't know if no one has ever done this. I'm sure I'm the only one. And it starts smoking like crazy and, and just is bad. I'm not a mechanic. I, I'm pretty tech savvy, but fixing stuff. No, not, not my jam. And I'm looking over and my neighbors are outside working. I don't know what they were doing, but the smoke is like billowing over the fence. And I immediately was like, I don't, I don't even know my neighbor's names to be like, Hey, Patty and Susie, I I know that's not your name. I'm just making names up now. I'm really sorry that this smoke is over here. Like I had that moment in my, in my soul that was like, I don't even know my neighbors. How do I not know my neighbors? I'm like, oh, because it requires work because I have to like stop what I'm doing and introduce myself to them and say, hey, I'm, I'm Neil. I'm, I'm, I'm next door. I'm really sorry that this is happening. The smoke, I'm, I'm going to fix it. I'm, I don't know what's going on, but I'm, I'm going to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But I think we as a society are so afraid of putting in the work, right? Yeah. And we, we are because there's some things that it's going to require of us that we don't want to do. I mean, the word I think about when you, when you say that, uh, quite ultimately is the, is, the, is the middle name of my youngest daughter. That's grace. Like there has to be some grace for ourselves in terms of our experiences. And like, you have to give yourself some grace from that situation and not use it as a chance to define you as some sort of terrible person because you don't know your neighbor, you know, give yourself the grace that says, should you, there's, there's a pretty good case that that's the case that you should, you should go there and know who they are. Now, does it, I think the, the problem with that is then it gets into this context of, well, if I don't, or if I have to know this neighbor and then this neighbor, and where does it end? How many, how many neighbors down, you know, is it two houses down? Is it all the houses? And then where does, and then herein lies the real crux of it. Your neighbors are everywhere. Everybody's your neighbor, you know? And then you're talking about eight and a half billion people across this entire big blue, you know, planet. That's a lot of people that try to treat as your neighbors. So then it becomes daunting. And then it becomes this thing where I think we get ourselves, I think people that are committed I think, especially in you know Western Christianity, or I think, are at this undercurrent of like wanting to do the right thing all the time, and I have to do the right thing, and I got to do the Jesus thing to people all the time. And oh my gosh, if I'm not representing Jesus, if I'm not doing the right, you know, you get so wrapped up in that that it can become it can become handicapped, it can become a, it can become hindering to what you're trying to do without that without that grace. And that's not again, but that's also not an excuse just to say, well, you know, next week or you know, one day or whatever. I mean, you can say it. But in your heart, it's, it's, it's using that challenge as an opportunity to invite you into what is it going to be like to walk over there, go up the drive, go up the sidewalk, knock on the door, not having any clue who or what's going to answer the door, right? And that's the part of the work that's difficult. Because then, and then you're going to be in your head, it's always going to be, here's what I'm going to say, and it's going to come out right. Oh, my God, we're going to be brothers. And then what if it doesn't go that way? What if they don't even answer the door? What if they answer the door and they just nod at you and then shut the door and let, you know, whatever? 
there's so many things that go through our heads in terms of what can happen, what can't happen. And then it's going to be, even if it, and it could be clunky and odd and weird and all these things. But, but those are those moments that I think are, are chances. It's, 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 it's a chance. And that's what I think is so beautiful about life is that no matter how many times we, we don't know our neighbor, there will be a chance to come up that you will have a chance to be a neighbor to somebody. And can we remember, we remember to remember, you know, that that's, that that's, Take this moment if you get it. And if you don't get it or you miss it, yeah, it does. It does suck. And it starts to make you feel bad. And I got lots of stories on that one. But, but don't be so hard on yourself. But, man, that is the chance, right? Those are those opportunities. You know, we had this idea of, you know, trying to get to know people and really trying to understand where they're coming from and really, you know, getting this new perspective, you know, not only to learn but to gain some understanding because I think our world is desperately needing so much understanding, right? Needing to know what someone else's belief system is. And and again, you know, I'm a huge follower of Jesus. Like that's not ever going to probably change. I can't think of anything that would derail that. I'm a Carolina fan, true and true. Nobody's going to tell me otherwise that I need to go root for another team. It's just not going to happen. Those are the kind of core things, you know, much like my wife. I'm always going to love my wife. Nobody's going to derail that. But my question is, where does that desire of yours birth from where you're going to sit at the table with somebody and have that conversation? Because so many times those, and don't take this the wrong way, but so many times those beliefs that we have about certain things inherently cause us to divide. And they can be, and they can be, there, there's some, there's some joy in that, you know, group of Carolina. You go to a basketball game. I, I, I did it for years. I was a huge sports fan for a long time. And last 10 years, it's really, really changed. Uh, but when you're around that group, there's a camaraderie there, right? I mean, in any capacity, whatever, whether it's people that you work with, whether it's, uh, it's sports fans, where you go to college, where you grew up, uh, you know, I'm from Texas. It doesn't take long to find out. You, you, you find out pretty quick who's from Texas. We, we tell you, um, you know, kind of like vegans or, or you know, people like that. We, we let you know. What you guys doing. are kind of proud of that, Listen. aren't you? It's, yeah, there's a lot of pride. And, okay. and, I, and I'm not it. saying that like flippantly. I, I've, I've talked to oh, a no. number of people through the years from Texas and there's a sense of pride. Like we are Texas. And yeah. I'm like, is it like you're a Marine? Is it that type of pride? Oh, yeah. Like the Navy yeah. pride? I mean, is that kind of kind of where that stems from? The, 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 you know, it's funny. You go through, you grow up and it's just in the water. It's in how we talk. It's in how we represent uh, the history, the, the modern way we do things. Uh, it, there's a romantic nature to it, humongous romantic nature to it. We talk, we learn about the Alamo and, and it's, you know, we're the only state that uh, joined the union as a nation, as its own nation, even though we probably could have done that with Hawaii, but we don't really count it. This is a whole their story but you know the fact that it's supposed to be we're supposed to be the big where it's all that you know still all the bravado and all the machismo even though we're not the biggest state and you ever meet somebody from alaska and they love to, to tell you that uh, but it, it's this weird dynamic i think that, that that we kind of been imposed upon ourselves which goes back to what i was saying before around it gives you a sense of identity right it, it kind of helps you who you are it helps you identify who who and what it is and makes you who you are and then when you get back to us once you find somebody else who's a carolina fan you're like aha now i can connect with you oh you're a christian oh good Oh, that's a Christian-owned business. Oh, and we assume that that means something, right? We assume that that because then we can relate to it. Because then it's like, well, if you think like I do, then 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 you can, right? Then you can, then you'll understand what I'm saying. Then we can speak. Then there's a there's a there's a harmony in our language, and I can, I can know what to expect from you. And if you don't do that, then I don't know what to expect. And and the, and sometimes the initial reaction, you know, the reptilian brain reaction, or whatever you want to call it, or however you want to explain that away, is that is that like-minded and people that are similar. There's a safetyness. There's a safety uh, aspect to it. Uh, that you can feel comfort in that back to comfort. And if it's different, then there's a 
and that's it's, it's going to challenge the the hom- homogeneous nature of that collection. And so, but then I would ask you, in a sense, and when you, I know, you know, obviously Duke is the, the main rival, but you probably there's a good chance that maybe it's not a Duke fan, or you're talking about your, your buddy Evan that was on the podcast, was a Yankee fan. Then you meet people that that have that same amount of passion for something that you completely feel different about. But then you go beyond that, and you come to find out that that maybe that may be the only little one of the small, that may be one of these sh- few differences that you had. But if you let that difference be enough to divide you and not not come across the table uh, emotionally and from a relationship standpoint and get to know them, you would miss out on this beautiful side on the uh, on the other end of this person. Besides what you know, baseball hat they're wearing, besides what jersey, besides who their favorite player is, who, or who they think is the greatest of all time in whatever sport or position, and then you get a chance to see that uh, behind that is this same. Uh, passion and zeal and, and shortcomings and obsessive nature around this. And then the beauty of that is I think it, it allows for an augmentation. It's, a, it's, it's another level of, of completeness of coming together as one, because now can we come together as, as fans of basketball? Can we come together as fans of podcasts? And maybe we don't like, I mean, our favorites aren't the same one, but if, but if we let, if that's where we stop and we don't go past that, we don't go further in in terms of that journey, then we lose the opportunity to find out that actually there's a lot more in common than we thought. So that that for me would be the biggest reason because it's not comfortable. In fact, I was saying before, it, it, you know, things that are different, different cultures, different tastes. If you've ever tasted food that's from a you know, quote unquote from another uh, culture, or even the food itself, or what you're you're cooking with what? You know, <laughs> I've been to China on business trips many times, and over there they eat anything that's edible, stuff that you would never think. To eat. I mean, I was I had the opportunity to eat dog in in China, and it wasn't because I'd originally thought over there a good example of this that the only time you would eat something like a dog or or anything like that, uh, you know, not an animal that we would eat typically it would be because something was wrong maybe it was economic or it was the only thing you could eat over there it's a delicacy in areas like you pay high dollar you pay top dollar like we would pay for a ribeye you can pay for that in china well well, what is that about? Now we can stop with that and say, you know, it's never okay to eat a dog and you're terrible people and we can write them off and that kind of thing and get into the moral ethical question. But if you can go beyond that, right? There's there's other stories besides that. And now I don't have a deep, wonderful story of reflection around eating a dog. I didn't get that far with that one. But there are other examples that I think are in the same vein of that. That It's just every time I seem to go down those opportunities, every time I seem to challenge that thing that doesn't make sense to me, whether it's a Bible story or a person or a culture or a belief, that is different than mine. I just have not, it just hasn't been a wasted effort. It just hasn't been a wasted effort. Even the stuff that's extremely difficult, even beyond that, the, the Malcolm X and, and New Jim Crow is more of an internal look at our society. But then there are people that are you know, white supremacists or kind of on that other side that almost kind of turns that, that difference into something that I start to feel is, for lack of a better word, not good. <laughs> like, and I don't really see the beauty in what they're doing. Uh, I mean, those are difficult areas to, to get into. And, and it can be very, very difficult. And you may not like at all what they're doing. But I go back to what we talked about just a second ago, which is what, what Christ teaches me in the Bible is to, is to believe that there's a possibility that there's something still there. Don't write off. It, it, you know, love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your, you know, all your mind, all your might, and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. It didn't just say the neighbors that look like you. It didn't just say the neighbors that live next to you. It didn't just say the neighbors that you that make the same amount of money you or went to the same college you or the root for the same sports team for you. The challenge we have from from that from a divine standpoint of, of what what I believe Christ is ultimately asking us to do isn't to get things right isn't to follow a set of rules is to is to become to have a, a oneness with ourselves a oneness with other people and a oneness with, with the divine so that's ultimately why I do this.
again, that's, that's just gorgeous. Uh, I love what you're saying there. And, and I know that sounds maybe flippant to some who, who maybe don't know us very well, but I really do. I love what you're saying. That's beautiful words. So here's my question, though. That has to come from somewhere. Did you have a growing up experience where you maybe just got shunned or maybe you just didn't get get the opportunity to maybe get to know somebody and you missed out, you feel like, on that opportunity? Uh, that's exactly where it came from. So growing up where I did, I grew up in a very, very well-to-do area. Lawrence Taylor had a house in the same neighborhood that I grew up in. Uh, Frank Beard, who was the drummer for ZZ Top, lived on the same golf course hole that I did in high school. And so the irony to that statement is the assumption would be that anybody who's living in the same area with people like that and then other people who could afford homes and live in the same area with people like that, that ultimately we had to have been well off, right? And I grew up poor, if you will, and definitely impoverished in a lot of ways around rich people, ironically. And that, and so being looked at uh, and during my childhood and being judged and, being, and also being written off in a way uh, as a young man because of you know, either where my family came from. And, and, I, and I mean, my, my, I can remember my mother and my dad and my mom, my dad was in the old business in the early eighties, had a Porsche, my mom had an Oldsmobile and then the boot, the bus hit and our cars got repossessed and, and we'd have a cop show up at night looking for my dad because he wrote hot checks or because he, you know, he spliced cable or uh, we'd have the phone would be turned off for a couple of months. Hot water would be turned off for a couple of months. We'd lose electricity for uh, a month. Uh, we, I can remember as a kid having certain points in time where, where I can remember one, we literally only had bread and water to eat dinner. That was served to us as, as far as that goes. And so, so around people, and I have friends who I grew up around it. I, mean, I had a friend of mine, uh, his sophomore, junior, senior year of high school, he got a brand new car every year. And I mean, like it was an Eddie Bauer, Ford Bronco 2 Eddie Bauer, our sophomore year, brand new, no miles on it. Centerline rims, put a $10,000 system in it, uh, which was back in the days, you know, probably back in high school. And that was like the ultimate thing that you could, I mean, that was like the status thing. And the world that I grew up in, that was how you, that's how you were gauged in terms of worth, the clothes you wore, uh, what your parents did, the cars that they drove. And my parents, I would have cars that would break down. I, I would drive to practice or something like that for baseball. And my, and after practice, the car that I drove in high school wouldn't start. And it would have to, and I'd have to, and it was, I would pray every time I turned the, the key that it would start. I mean, I, I grew up in this weird dynamic of kind of in the poor area around rich people. And, and then having that become part of what I was evaluated on. And then also believing on some level for a long time that that was the center or that was the goal that if I could just get there, uh, these people would respect me and these people would accept me. And then I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be one of the outsiders, the dysfunctional side. And I had a very dysfunctional family, to be honest. I mean, my mother was an alcoholic, she still is. And, and there's just a, a lot of just stuff that looking back at, and even the way I was raised, that we didn't have, um, we didn't really have rules. I mean, we, my parents would probably be upset about saying that. But I mean, I can remember the first time I was exposed to pornography, I was five, six years old. And my mother didn't take it away. And I can remember watching our movies and, and just kind of being subjected to stuff now that I look at kids and think, what in the world at that age was I doing? I remember having to drive my mom home for having too much to drink at 12, 13 you know, years old and, and having to be responsible and having to be that kind of stuff. And so I think, I think recognizing what it's like. And then in the military, to be honest, um, and this may be hard for a lot of people to see or even people, I, obviously people would probably disagree, but in my experience, um, I spent six years as an enlisted person in the Navy. And when, again, my experience in the military, when you are looked at as a, not, not just from an authority standpoint, chain of command, rank, and all that sort of stuff, but as an enlisted person, when you are considered a, a less than, and from a, I mean, like a human level less than, it, it, you remember that. It stains 
your soul when people look at you and decide that they know who you are because of something that either you don't have much control over or that just quite simply isn't true. So you're wearing dungarees, you're an enlisted person, you're 20 years old. You, you don't deserve to be treated in the same way. And I don't mean like we need state rooms and fancy stuff and I don't need luxury. I didn't definitely need that, 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 that time period. I'm not looking to be, you know, to be catered to. But when it's not, when there's not, an, I'm not talking about an authority standpoint, especially in the military, there has to be a chain, there has to be different things. But relative to professionalism and how a unit and how a team really works, there may be authority in certain areas to make decisions and lead, but the power to make the team, to make that unit cohesive comes from the abilities and the importance and the equitability of coming to that group, to meet one of those people. And so, uh, yeah, between the military and growing up, I'm kind of the wrong side. Being on the, being on the right side of the tracks, but in the wrong way, um, I just saw for years just what I thought was just a misunderstanding of who I was. Like I want like that this thing you think of me is not true. This thing that you think of how who I am and what I am because of certain things because my mother was a she cleaned houses when I was in high school and you, know, you can imagine when all the rich people that you you live that you go to school with if your mom is the one cleaning their house and is an alcoholic and you know it's just you know it lends itself to to conversations and to comments and to perspectives of who you are even though you have nothing to do with it. So I would say those things in my experience uh, in my 20s, early 20s, and definitely my childhood led me to, to believe that you may have it wrong. You may have that, you may have that kid peg, that kid peg wrong. You may have that person over there pegged wrong. And all these things that line up and maybe they have a rap sheet and they did some stupid stuff. And that's, again, that's not even accounting for my own mistakes as just a person, right? Uh, but if you don't, if you don't allow it, but if that's, if that becomes the thing that you use as the, as, as the opportunity to either divide or, or separate or decide that that person is who that is that way or will always be that way. And I just, I just think that you just, you lose that chance because those people, people change. There's a journey that happens. We transform, we learn, we go through this. I just don't, I just don't, I just think you, you miss out. You miss out by doing that. Is there a perception that you had that you knew where you were just completely wrong on? And you're embarrassed once you found out about it. Oh yeah. Um, is there one in particular? I mean, maybe there's several, but yeah, I, I, I would say the first one that stands out to me is how how I saw the male to female relationship that wasn't romantic. And what I mean by that is, uh, my sister when I was young, I have a sister, younger sister and younger brother. And I can remember growing up, and my goal was to help my brother be the best person he could, and and I thought that, you know, I had to be the big brother and help him along and be there for him. And, but I never thought that way about my sister. I never thought that way about my sister. For some reason, it just wasn't on my list. I didn't inherently, you know, and if people want to think I'm a bad person for this, that's fine. I'm just telling you that as a young person, I just didn't think that what I said to my sister mattered in that way that it did my brother. And what I didn't recognize for a long time was she was watching what I did just as much as my brother was. And then when I got married, uh, the second time, third time, actually, I've been married three times. But when the third, my marriage now, um, Emma and Ethan were my, became, they were, I consider my kids now, but Emma, Emma was my um, oldest daughter and Ethan was, and it was, my wife brought them into the marriage. And I remember thinking how excited Ethan must be to have a dad, again, kind of an estimate. I wasn't trying to be misogynistic. I wasn't trying to, you know, not say that it was important, but I kept thinking how important it was for Ethan to have a father figure. 
And it was Emma in the same spirit of me not recognizing the impact I could have had on my sister. It was my oldest daughter who, who I found out, wow, um, holy smokes, like the opportunity not to put value on it or quantify it was as great, if not greater, probably to have an impact on my oldest daughter in a, from a male to female standpoint that was obviously not romantic in any way because they're looking, you know, we're looking for, for, for all, for, for something, for there's some guidance or impression need all these different inputs from different aspects. And I didn't recognize and didn't understand that until I got married. And then I got to have that opportunity to be a dad to a daughter. And that, you know, 12 years ago now, 11 years ago now was one of those moments that just, it, it's like in the old cartoons when you'd have the big donkey ears grow, you know, you see the, somebody go through something and they feel like, a, they feel like a jack wagon. And so they kind of, you know, they artistically morph, you know, morph the character into a, into a donkey because that's what you feel like. And I mean, that's a kind of a simple way to put it, but it really rocks you to your soul when you realize that you had that wrong. I didn't look at it that way. I didn't think it was important. You know, I didn't think it wasn't that I, and I never thought women were like objects to be, you know, for my pleasure and and there was that nonsense or that they're here to somehow serve me and there was that BS. For me, it was, I just didn't understand the impression that it made because I, I, you know, if they were related to you, then they're related to you. Um, But they, but you know, just in terms of the general impression, there wasn't a lot to happen there, but I've realized in the last 11, 12 years, and especially with my youngest daughter, who's now nine, uh, and even my wife, that they're, it is extremely important. I mean, it sounds so trite, almost sounding trite. It's important. It's more than that, right? You have this opportunity to influence. And I didn't see it for a very, very long time. And so that would be a story that, that just blew me out of the water and, and humbled me uh, incredibly. And, uh, and I'm glad for it. That's great. Is there a person, maybe it's dead or alive, we, we play this game at the end of our show, so I don't want to take too much away from our game per se, because we probably want to wrap up pretty soon. But but I'm curious, one of the questions that we ask on our game, Senseless, is, you know, dead or alive, dinner with one person, dead or alive, you know, who would it be? And I, I'm curious, like, historical figure, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a historical figure, but I know you're a big history buff, so that's why I kind of went that direction. But is there a person that you just would love to get to the table, to have that conversation with, maybe it's somebody in your past or, or maybe it is that historical figure. Oh yeah. 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 And, and so those out there who, who may listen to this, who just bear with me from a standpoint of the role in the story, I would go to the Bible. I would go to Joseph from Joseph and Mary. And the reason why is that I think, you know, it's a very simple, it's a very subtle part of the entire story. As vast and as deep and as amazing as the, as the Bible and all the stories are, but his particular role in that, look at that sequence of events and then you go back and put yourself in the context of that time period and those cultures and what was culturally the norm. And it's gotten even greater as I've learned more about it through, especially through my buddy, Alexander Shia. So imagine you're betrothed and you have a woman who now you're going to have this relationship with it's, And this was this engagement at that time period is even greater in terms of its significance, both legally, um, uh, culturally, all these things in terms of when somebody was committed to you and you're committed to them, the bond of that is just as high as before the ceremony is after. So Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And in the midst of this, he finds out that she's pregnant. Now, again, not to be stereotypical, you're a guy. We're, we're, I mean, if, if you're, or I would even think a woman would be the same way in some context, but I think even more so that this person, is, and it's supposed to be, and there's this incredible value put on the purity of it. And that's a different argument for a different day, but just allowing for the, the cultural expectations of the day was purity of coming into that relationship for both, especially a lot of pressure was put on right or wrong is put on the, on the side of, 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 of women. And so she comes into this situation 
during during it and comes to him and basically says, I'm pregnant. And it's and God told me that it was, you know, especially this immaculate you know, conception, this, it, that the baby was, this is a God thing. And before Joseph has his experience, he decided to divorce her quietly, which is what we read in the gospel. When he had every right, when he actually had cultural, he actually was legal inside the, the world that he lived in, that he could have killed her. There are people today, there was a set story in, in Iran, where honor killings are part, have been part of cultures throughout our, our history as a, as a, as a world. Uh, and the whole premise is it's a dishonorable act, especially but in, so it's, in my, my understanding has always been a woman. When a woman dishonors her, her especially sexually, whether even they're, they're a victim of rape, I did a, a speech on it in college and did some research. And it's just, it's my, it's mind numbing, mind blowing that it's this idea that when, in the way that you make up for the, the way that that justice is merited out or, or vetted out, the way that you balance those scales is the woman dies. I mean, it's an honor killing. There's actually legal legislation right now in place in countries like Iran that account for murder under those conditions and lower the sentence because of, a, of an understanding of why they're doing it, not just some random act. So there's a justification for it. In that day, Joseph could have killed Mary, and no one in that culture would have batted an eye. It would have been his right to do so. And even before he, before he had you know, talked to before he had the, the experience with God to you know, help him understand it as we, as we read it, he still was going to divorce her quietly. There's a humility there because he was going to, you know, him, him, what happened to your, what happened to your fiance? Well, it didn't work out. You know, we're, we're not. I mean, it didn't take long in a small village or small area to get, get around what would happen, especially if she ends up giving birth later. And what that would do to him, him personally, he, he didn't believe in that at that point. And then even, even though God comes and helps him understand what's going on, he still made the decision to go with her, and he didn't have to then even, even though I know God told him, and we like to think that, well, God gives a clear instruction, so how else, well, what else could you do besides say yes to God? Well, I think there's people all the time to say yes to God, and but the world criticizes, and the world critiques, and the world, it doesn't, it doesn't, <laughs> if you say God told you to do something, there's people that may believe you, and there's a group of people that are going to say that you're, they don't believe you at all. Especially if what you're doing is really, really out there, really, really unique, or something that doesn't make sense, especially from a cultural, physical standpoint. And he still decides to do that. And I've learned later that what they would have done, what his home village, what his home uh, clan or his home group would have done at that point when he decided to, to go with Mary, even though she went and they found out she was pregnant and why, part of the reason he had to leave was they would have ritually killed him. What I mean by that is, they would have actually created a gravestone. They would have had a ceremony that even though he was physically alive, basically he was excommunicated from his, from his family. And so he decided to take that on as well and stay with Mary and help her after and not just abandon her to whatever was coming. And so for me, and, and it's a brief, it's a, you get all that from this brief mention and we don't really hear about him uh, much at all anymore or ever really in the gospel, but just to sit down with him and just, and I mean, I guess the easy answer would say, why did you do that? Well, God told me and it's all easy. I don't think it's that simple. I would love to know what, what in him um, and how he got through that. Because there was going to be moments, right? Oh, well, she's pregnant, but yeah, it's, it's God's child. Oh, oh, God, oh, God got her pregnant. Oh, okay. All right, Joseph, whatever. You know, kind of, I mean, I just think there would have been some reaction to that. I'm not saying everybody would have not believed him, but I, there would have been somebody, there would have been a group of people that didn't. And so the idea that he would have gone through all that to, to be a part of that relationship and to believe in her and then to be this, this father figure uh, to, to Jesus as Jesus, knowing that how, and, you know, there's semantics around this that we could argue or whatever, but just assuming that he's his father figure to him, but he's not his biological son. Having, having raised two kids uh, that, are, that mean, I don't care where the biology comes from, and, and they know that, and I know that, that I love them regardless of the nature of the biology or how they were conceived. I don't care what brought them in the world. I just love them anyway. And so, and, and, and 
So to, to see Joseph in that context around it, to see what would have made his, what was it about that and his, what that was like for him after that standpoint, I would love to know. Uh, I'd love to talk to him. Yeah. That was, again, Sean, that was just so good. Uh, I love the insight there. Um, I, I think we, we kind of forget that there's some white space. That's what our pastor calls it, white space between stories. There's more going on in between the white spaces. So that's uh, that's some good insight there. So how can people find out more about your show? I, I know it's uh, you, you said you're not on social media, which to me is we'll have to talk and you'll have to tell me how that works because I'm not sure I'm not sure I could go without Facebook or Instagram or Twitter for a day. So um, maybe sometimes you'll have to share with me how to do that and, uh, and accomplish that. But but how can people hear more about the show and, and hear more about you and what you're doing? Sure. So the, I mean, the easiest thing is the website, the come to the table podcast.com. It's very, very long. I should have known better than to make it you know, this war and peace uh, thing, but it, it, it was the best I could do at the time and it made sense. And so just start the website and then that, that'll help you find different, you know, and then go listen to the podcast if you, if you will. And, 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 I, and if you like what Neil's doing, and again, I think we chew the same dirt very, very well, uh, if I can say that in, in the same spirit of that. And that's why I love it. And it's this thing where you just, you're, you're never going to probably have heard of any of the people that I've had on like yours, but then you get to hear that there's these gems, there's these, it's this, this treasure chest of, of experiences and opportunities to, to hear insight, which will, I hope, my hope and prayer, that it's enough of an insight. It, it's not meant to make you feel jealous. It's not, it's not meant to, sh- to make you feel as if you're less than, or this is this amazing story over here. This person's done what they've accomplished and what you haven't. It's, it's really meant to be uh, an invitation for them as well to not only listen, but to have their own chance to sit at the table, encourage them to sit at the table with somebody else. And even if you just do that, if you're doing that, the spirit of what I've been doing on the show, I believe will come into that spirit of that experience and you will, and it will make sense to you. It's, it's it's why the metaphors work. It's why the analogies work. And it's uh, and, and I and look. I didn't I didn't come up with the idea. <laughs> you know, there's a couple other come to the table podcasts out there, and I'm like, great. You know, it's it's not a single thing, and it's not a, it's not a unique entity in terms of uh, ownership or of the idea. You know, you just you stand on the shoulders of giants and and just try to do and try to do the, and serve well the gifts that you're given and serve well the uh, opportunities you're given as far as I go. So. If you like all that, I would say listen to the podcast. And if and if not, if it just doesn't come up, I would just ultimately challenge people to sit at the table with somebody who's different than you. Sit at the table with somebody who thinks differently than you. And not to do so with the idea that you're going to turn around and tell them and try to argue a point. Listen first. Listen first. Let them speak first. And and listen. And don't and don't listen. In a way, this is the model of the show. Don't listen to react. Don't listen like waiting. Okay, when Neil said this, he said about North Carolina being the best ever. And well, I'm gonna go find out what Duke's overall record is against North Carolina. Who's won more conference titles? And who's won more national championships? And who's got more players that have been drafted in the NBA? And you know, I'm gonna take that information. I'm gonna tell tell Neil while he's wrong and why he should he should like Duke more because it's a, it's a better school, right? That that tends to be how we think sometimes about a lot of subjects. And and there's in my experience. There's an opportunity to do that, and you can do that and argue all day long. But the real chance is to sit there and go, hey, you know, what was it about? What was it about North Carolina that just stirred your soul when you told that story? It came out in 1992, played Michigan in the national championship game. And when they did, there was something about the way they came out and the way that they looked. And there was an energy there, and there was an aura there. Something, something drew you in, and then you started learning about traditions and the different aspects in the, in the you know, what a Tar Heel is and why that's important and why basketball and, 
all these things. And, you know, and you go down this road to that point, there's an opportunity. There's a greater opportunity there to learn from you than it is to just try to oppose you. It's good stuff, Sean. Uh, really good stuff, actually. By the way, uh, Carolina owns this series 139 to 114, <laughs> in case you're curious at home. So. No, I was, I, in my head, I was like, and I bet you he knows. <laughs> I had to Google it. Hands down, I did have to Google it. So according to Google, uh, Carolina does own the series. So so let's play our game, uh, Senseless. Yeah. So this is our game we'll still play. Hopefully you don't get number six because it's going to be really awkward if you get six. You're going to have to come up with a okay. different character. Okay, number two, which, of course, is this. Who is touching your life right now? Uh, and everybody. It sounds bad. You are right now. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I mean, I, I mean, quite honestly, I mean, it's just the opportunity – to do this, right? It's therapy in a way. You know this, whether you're doing it on that side or this side. Um, right now, you are. You're giving me an opportunity to be heard, giving people an opportunity to listen to what I have to say, and uh, and that that is you know, you're the answer right now. I don't know what to say to that. Like I'm kind of, I'm very seldom at a loss for words, but that kind of took my words away. So so thank you. Thank you for that. Sean, you've, you've been a joy and a pleasure. I cannot wait to hear more about what you're doing with your show. I invite people to come to the table and listen to what he's doing. We, of course, will link all of that in our show notes. So uh, guys, just if you can, go out and take a look around your world today and see if there's somebody you can have dinner with, have a meal with, break some bread with. I know it's really hard. It's, it's still kind of this weird COVID-19 stuff, writing going on, all kinds of craziness going on in the world today. But amidst the crazy isn't it great just to have a conversation with somebody, just a cup of coffee to say, hey, where are you at? Where are you standing? What do you believe about whatever? And uh, I think Sean and I are a great example of that. And hopefully you guys can follow our example and maybe imitate us as, as uh, we try to imitate somebody higher than us. That, of course, being God. So, uh, guys, thanks again for listening. Sean, um, any last words for us? Yeah, so consider this the official, and for those that are out there that love you, consider this the official invite for you to come to the table and come on my pod. And so we'll We'll do that so they can may, at least that gives them a good place to start, maybe. So yes, I'd, I'd love to have you come on the podcast and listen to you. Absolutely. We would, of course, enjoy that as well. So just remember, guys, when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. On behalf of executive producer Garrett and myself, Neil Matthews, we, of course, want to invite you back next week as we try on other people's shoes. Thank you so much for joining us on Other People's Shoes. As you know, I'm your host, Neil Matthews. Thank you again for joining us this week. I'm super excited to share that episode with you. Sean and I, I feel like somehow we are long lost brothers. Now, I've declared multiple times on this show, I've never been to Texas, but for some reason, I just feel we are kindred spirits fighting the same battle, trying to get the same message of empathy out to the world. So it was great to share that episode with you. Guys, thanks so much for listening. If you have time, go check out what Sean's doing. Come to the Table podcast. We, of course, have linked all of his information in our show notes. Want to call your attention to next week. We start a new month and we get to celebrate our nation's Independence Day. A lot of stuff going on next week. But before we get to that, I want to give you a little sneak preview of next week's show. Yeah, so the only thing to, to search for that I haven't found is the the continued journey of, of retiring from, from the Corps. That was the, the desire going in. I mean, I lived it, I breathed it, I picked up early, I picked up E5 in under two and a half years, a meritorious promotion, so um, that's not to like 
slap me on the back by any means. It was just to show you the motivation of moving forward. I mean, I, I wanted nothing more than to be a Marine. So not ending that journey and not finding out what it's like to say I'm retired and knowing now that I could look back and go, man, I would have been retired by now or, hey, I would have been getting out or, you know, I would have been up there um, is, is that unknown that I, that I, that I still struggle with. Um, and then the finding piece is beyond the Marine Corps, and it's the faith, and it's the fact of knowing that um, my faith is the driving force that will last far beyond my title Marine and my last name, which God has given me, and finding who I am in that. And that was a journey in itself after I got out to find out who is Mike Kensler versus who is Sergeant Kensler. Simplify. Hoorah! That's right, I want to call your attention to coming back and joining us next Wednesday as we sit down with a guest that is a former Marine. Hear about his journey on why he chose to become a Marine and what he is doing now post-military career. It's our salute to the military service and all those who have gone before him and all those who currently serve as we celebrate our nation's birthday at the end of the week. So hopefully you can join us for that. If you'd like to know more about our show, of course, you can go to OPSpodcast.com. That, of course, is a great place to go to hear past, present, and future episodes of this show. If you'd like to give us feedback on the show, of course, we'd love to hear from you as the listener. Just what we're doing great what you don't like, all of that is available to you at this phone number, 203-548-7463. That's 203-548-7463. And of course, we still are on the hunt, the search, the quest, trying to find that next guest. So if that's you, of course, use that number, 203-548-7463, to reach out to us to see if you can be a guest on a future episode of Other People's Shoes. Speaking of interacting, we, of course, would love to interact with you on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We, of course, do post there daily to those three platforms under the name OPS Podcast Show. So join us there each and every day. We, of course, would love to meet you there and interact with you there. So just remember, guys, when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. On behalf of executive producer Garrett and myself, Neil Matthews, we, of course, want to invite you back next week as we try on other people's shoes.